And so we are in a year-long series. If you're new, we're call, calling it the Wayfinding Series. And we are going from Genesis 1 to the end of the Bible in one year. We're using a tool called the Wayfinding Bible, which we encourage you to bring. We encourage you to buy one. If you cannot afford one, uh, there are some at the Welcome Desk. We have a, a member of our community that said they would like to do that for the church. And that's an absolutely amazing thing to be able to give away God's Word. And uh, so we've spent the, the first number of weeks, we started beginning of September, we spent the first number of weeks in the book of Genesis, an absolutely beautiful book, creation and fall, and we saw a lot of the key stories, although we missed a lot of great stories, but we saw a lot of key stories. And if you look at Genesis in essence, you could say that what we saw in those number of weeks is God working through different families, connected families, but different families. Um, I would say if you want to feel good, let's be honest, every family is dysfunctional. Can I get an amen? We're all dysfunctional on some level. If you want to feel good about your dysfunctionality, read through Genesis. And what you see is God working through broken, messed up people to be redeemed and be his people. And that's in essence what we believe God does, right? God works through us to make a difference, to be the hope of the world in the world around us. And so that's what we saw in Genesis. And now we come to the book of Exodus. And uh, Everett Fox, a great thinker, says this about Exodus. He says, the book of Exodus speaks of a God who acts directly in history. So in Genesis, God works through families. Now God is jumping in, acts directly in history, blow by blow. A God who promises, liberates, guides, and gives laws to a people. This deity frees his people, not by subterfuge, but by directly taking on Egypt and its gods. And so we're going to see in this book, in the few weeks that we're in it, God is right in the middle of the mess. God is at work. And uh, we, we've talked each week, there's a lot of different ways that we could approach these texts. And uh, we've, we've said that each one of these texts, we can see Jesus Christ. Exodus 1 and 2 is no different, that this story of the Exodus, and the Exodus is God freeing his people from Egyptian rule, that is one of the most important stories in the life of an Israelite. And Jesus, in the first century, some of the language that we see and we will see when we get there in the spring, after winter has come, uh, we'll see in the Gospels that Jesus brings in the second Exodus. He brings in this new freeing, this new liberating of his people. Um, but I want to hit this from a little bit different place this morning. Uh, when this was written, those that would have read it, whether it was the 6th century or 12th century, they would have read the story of God at work, of God's people under Egyptian rule, and they would have often seen their story in it. And so I want us to read this. We're not, I'm going to give us a little flyover of chapter 1. They're going to read all of chapter 2. And I want us to see our story in this. And how God, through Jesus Christ, wants to work in our story. So Exodus chapter 1, it starts with this genealogy list, which ties us back to Genesis. Then it says in verse 6. Because in Genesis, we had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It was sort of their story. And now it says in verse 6 of chapter 1, In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. And what happens in Egypt, they're in the land of Egypt, what happens in Egypt in verse 8 is that a new king comes into rule and he knows nothing about Joseph. Joseph had risen to prominence in that kingdom, but now a new guy is in charge and knows nothing about what had gone on. And what the narrative tells us is that the Israelites' number was growing larger and larger and larger and Pharaoh is afraid. He's afraid it's going to grow too large and things are going to get out of control. And so what he does, the first thing he does in chapter 1 is he decides to make them slaves. They used to be free, and now they're slaves in a foreign land. 
And not just slaves doing sort of menial housework. It says in the text that they're doing really, really hard work. Life is not easy. Life is not enjoyable. Things are messed up. And apparently in Pharaoh's mind, as he watches that, he's seeing that things still aren't good. Now he decides to take a second step. And as we read through chapter 2, I want us to be able to try and put ourselves in the story to see the drama, to see the narrative and what's going on. And so he takes a second step. Let's make them slaves, but they're still growing too large. And then it says in verse 15, Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puha, a couple of more names to put to your list. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. And listen to this. The baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. You can imagine things are not going well for Israel at this point. If you have a son, the son dies. You keep reading, you come down to verse 19. There's certain verses in the scripture, like, why is it in there? I think this is a somewhat hilarious verse. 19 says, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian woman. The midwives replied, they are more vigorous. That's what women all want to hear about themselves, right? They are more vigorous, and they have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. And so apparently, like, things are out of control. There's babies popping out everywhere. I mean, Pharaoh doesn't know what to do. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Chapter 2. Let's read it. About this time. A man and woman from the tribe of Levi, Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, now just try and be in the story. You know what happens to boys, right? She gives birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby. That word for special is the same as Genesis 1 and 2, the word for good. She saw that there was something very special about this baby and kept him hidden for three months. When she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reed and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in a basket. And there's going to be some beautiful foreshadowing that's going on, but that word for basket is really like little ark. So Noah, they put him in a basket, not knowing if he's going to live or die, but there's this foreshadowing of just as God had delivered Noah and his family with that ark, God is now going to deliver the Israelites through this little infant child. He's going to do something absolutely amazing. And it says in it, and laid it among the reeds. And if you know the story, they're going to be delivered through what? Does anybody know? Through a big body of water, right? And it's often called the Sea of Reeds. And so Moses is put in this little ark in this Sea of Reeds, foreshadowing that he will eventually free, liberate, lead God's people out of this. And the text says, along the bank of the Nile River, verse 4, the baby sister then stood in a distance. I mean, you imagine the little sister just standing watching what's going to go on to see what would happen to him. Verse 5, soon Pharaoh's daughters came down to bathe in the river. And her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Verse 7. And the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the baby. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home. 
and nurse him. Isn't it interesting? Like you, you think you're putting your child out there to die. Maybe you get lucky and something happens. And now the child actually returns home for a season. Verse 10. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. We've seen the last couple weeks, names carry significance in the Old Testament. Names are very, very important. And Moses' name literally means one who pulls out. Moses would be the one, this, this reluctant leader would be the one who ends up leading, pulling God's people out of slavery. Verse 11. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went down to visit his people, the Hebrews, when he saw how hard they were forced to work during his visit. He saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, listen to this, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Moses, what we're going to see, and we only get to do chapters 1 and 2 this morning, but if we were to look at the next couple of chapters too, Moses starts to get some labels. In Egypt, in this place that they're not supposed to be, neither do they want to be, Moses gets the label of murderer, and we'll see that he gets the label of stutterer. That some labels are put on him that he doesn't want. Verse 14, second half. Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did, and sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened and tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. He's running away from the situation. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the troughs for their father's flock. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up, rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he threw water for their flocks. It's intriguing. This, this guy who's going to be so reluctant to step into the place that God has for him naturally is stepping into situation and making things happen. Like there's something there that God sees. He's going to struggle to see it. Verse 18, when the girls returned to rule their father, he asked, why are you back so soon today? Verse 19, an Egyptian rescued us from the flocks, they answered, and then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. And the father says, where is he? I mean, don't, don't you guys know what hospitality is? Why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. Moses accepted the invitation, and he settled there with him. In time rule, gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be, isn't it like verse 21? Moses accepts dinner and in one verse gets a wife. That's, that's like, that's well done. Verse 22. Later she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I've been a foreigner in a foreign land. And there's certain things, as you read, just stop and listen to that line, like, things aren't right. Abraham gave us a promise, and it's not, we're, we don't have our land. We don't have what had been given us. Verse 23, years passed. And the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to die. Isn't it interesting the way the author talks about God? There's a word in the last verse that we're going to see again and again in the book of Exodus, and it's the word new. And it's different than noticing, like most people noticed where the situation that Israel was in, God knew. 
It's this deeper, more connected reality that God has with his people. I think if we were to look at the whole of Exodus, one of the themes that we would see is this idea of journey. That Exodus, it's about Moses' journey, it's about Israel's journey, but it's about the journey. So often we get focused on the de- destination that we lose, that the majority of the time that we spend in life is in the journey, right? It's in the middle of walking along and doing life. And I don't know about you, I find that fascinating. One of my favorite movie series is Lord of the Rings. Who's seen Lord of the Rings? Yes! I mean, that's four times as many as the first service. You guys are better, better than the first service. The rest of you who haven't seen it, you need to watch it by next week. Um, but you watch the Lord of the Rings and Frodo's sort of story, and it's, it's about the journey. The majority of the narrative is not him getting there. The majority of the narrative, it's the journey. It's what happens. It's who, if you watch that story, it's who he becomes in the journey, right? Everett Fox says this about the journey. He says, real literature is dominated by stories involving a journey. More often than not, these tales are framed as quests for holy or magical objects like the Holy Grail, or for eternal youth or immortality like Gilgamesh. The classic pattern calls for the hero to make a kind of round trip, crossing dangerous thresholds like monsters and giants and unfriendly supernatural beings, both on the way towards the goal and on the way home. Either at the middle or at the end of the journey stands the goal, which often entails meeting with the divine and or obtaining a magical or life-giving object like the golden fleece. Listen to this. Such stories mirror our own longing for accomplishment and acceptance, as well as our universal desire to overcome the ultimate enemy, death. Listen to this line again. Such stories mirror our own longing for accomplishment and acceptance. I think when we see the stories, one of the ways in which we can address it is that we see the journey that we do. The people who would have read it initially that were under, under captivity would have read their story into it. And we read our story into that. Because the majority of Scripture, it for sure talks about the destination. We talk about that at Crossview. That one day God will make all things right. That heaven, the new heavens and new earth will come down and everything will be restored. But we're not there yet. So we're on the journey. It's what we live and it's how we do life. It's about the journey. The destination influences the journey, but it's very much about the journey. Think about Moses and Israel's journey in the story and some, some more of the story that we just read. It's interesting. Israel is in Egypt. They're not in the place where they were, they're not in the promised land. They're not where things are right. Egypt in Hebrew comes from two words, meh, which means from, and czar, which is this narrow. And so it literally means that Israel is in this place of constricted opportunities, tight control, narrow-mindedness, where movement is severely, severely limited. Like things aren't right. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're in a foreign land. They're not in the promised land. And here's the thing. Does anybody know how long they end up in Egypt? How many years? 400 plus years. We'll talk about this in a second, but often in our wildernesses, it feels like 400 years, doesn't it? When you're in that place of things are messed up and not right, it just, it feels long. 
And then you think in, in that Egypt, in that Mitzrayim is the, is the Hebrew word, it's, it's the painful experiences for both Israel and Moses. Moses kills somebody. He has this issue with stuttering. He runs from situations. Israel, they're slaves. They're slaves in a horrible situation. Their firstborn children are dying. Things are not right. And then, so they're freed from, from Egypt. They're freed from this narrow, constricted place. Where do they go? Say it out loud. Where do they go? In the desert, the wilderness. Like, really, God? I mean, 400 years under Egyptian captivity, things are messed up, and then you send us here? For how many years? 40 years. The word for wilderness can mean to speak. I think it's interesting. God speaks to Moses at the burning bush in the wilderness. God speaks, in the text we see, more in the wilderness than he did to them in captivity. And how do we process that? And then it's sort of who the, you know, Moses becomes through this journey of captivity and then wilderness. Moses becomes this reluctant leader. He steps into the shoes that God had for him, but very reluctantly. Israel's on this journey, and we know it's up and down. It's a roller coaster of becoming God's people, messing up, becoming God's people, messing up. It's that journey back and forth that we see. And so let me ask us three questions as we think about our journey, as we look at this and we connect it to our journey. First question is this, what's your Egypt? We all have them, we've been there, or the promise is you're going to be there. That place that's constricted, it's narrow, it's not right, it's not where you're supposed to be, it's a painful experience, it's a relationship that has fallen apart, it's a health issue that's come upon you. Maybe it's a sinful addiction. That your Egypt right now is something that you're struggling with that you just can't get past. For some of you, it's just life. Like when you hear narrow, constricted place, you're like, oh my gosh, Brad, that's just, that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Like it's just the busyness of life. A few months ago, I had one of those Egypt places where a, a, a sort of connected family member had a problem with me, and, and it, I wouldn't say even still totally resolved, but it, it was this relational thing that for me was in Egypt. It was something that I didn't want, that didn't feel right, that felt hurtful. And you know when you're there, right? You know when you're in that constricted place. It's hard to talk about. I'm not going to have you turn to the person next to you and say, what is your deepest, darkest Egypt? Share it out loud and pray over the person. That's not the safety of this environment, but we bring it in here. Whether we say it out loud or not, we bring it in here. And so it leads us to the second question is this. Because it's often in that Egypt, in that Mitzrayim, in that constricted, narrow, tough place that people say things to us or about us or we think things about ourselves that are not who God intends us to be. And so what labels do you wear? What names have you heard in the middle of that journey? What are people saying about you that is not words from Jesus Christ? About who you are or who you're becoming? Moses, stutter, murder, killer. What do you hear? What are the words that you're hearing? from the people 
around you. And we know, I mean, I, I, this situation a couple months ago, there were some things that I was called that it just felt wrong. But then they sit with you. They start to sort of fester in a little bit. And if they begin to be the things that control you, it just messes you up. So here's what I think. Because we look at this story and we look at the story of Scripture. One of the most important things to realize, one of the questions to ask is, who is God making you on the journey? Who is God making you on the journey? You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you haven't, we invite you into that place to turn towards and follow Christ. And then as you begin that journey of following Jesus, who are you becoming? And especially who are you becoming in that tough situation? I think one of the things that we can see in this story that we can cling to, that we know, is that God hears, God knows, as it says at the end of the text. And I think and I believe, just as the word wilderness means to speak, that God will speak to you in those tough situations. Maybe not in some loud, audible voice, but you will have and can have, if you're open to it, an interaction with God that will carry you through. A number of years ago, I had this, you know, one of those years where it's like, oh, nothing is going right. And I was driving home from, from work to home, going down 169 there in the southwest suburbs of the metro. And uh, just, oh, angry, everything was going on inside. And I had this moment where God came to me. And I just started sobbing. And you can ask my wife, I don't cry that often started sobbing to the point where I had to pull over to the side of the road, and I had one of them, and I can't tell you what God said, or what, what, what ex- but I knew that God was there with me, speaking to me in that moment, in that really, really hard place. What I believe is that God wants to do that for you as well. Whatever it is, maybe you're on the faith journey and you are angry at God, you're wondering what's up. God wants to come in and speak, I love you, I want a relationship with you. I want to forgive your sins. I want you to follow me. For some of you, you just got that word, that diagnosis, and it is bad. And God wants to say, I'm there. I'm with you. What does God need to say? And can you be open to God actually being the one who comes to you in that hard place? Let's pray. Father, God, I pray. We bring, we're one church, but we bring a lot of different stories this morning. So I pray, Lord, that we would cling to the hope that you, you're there when we're in the Egypts of life, that in the wilderness you speak, and sometimes with the most clarity, God. So, Lord, I pray that you would do your good work through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, one of the practices that churches have traditionally done in gathered worship is a practice called the prayers of the people, where we say or write down prayer requests or praises that we have, and often a minister will pray over them. And uh, we traditionally have not done that at Crossview. Um, It's a tradition that I come out of that many covenant churches do that we think is important. So, um, we want to try that in a little bit of a different way this morning. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's a pretty neat day to do it. It's November 2nd, the first Sunday of, of uh, November. Does anybody know what church holiday is today? Let me say it out loud. All Saints. And uh, All Saints is a time, uh, once again traditionally, where in the church we say out loud or we have in writing any among us who have gone on to be with our Lord and Savior. Um, and we do it to remember, but we also do it because there is hope. Amen? That this is not the end. Um, today is often, you know, now as the church is 2,000 you know, years old, it's, it's also a remembrance of two other things. One is the persecuted church. That we worship freely, but there are many brothers and sisters around the world who don't worship freely. And worship actually um, with the realization that, that they could die if they were found out. It's also Orphan Sunday, where those thinking about adoption, there's something that goes on there. So what we want to do is as you come forward for communion, you'll take the bread, dip it in the cup. Um, we want to invite you to come up to one of these, and they're the same on both sides. There's three, um, three different boards. One is a board of lament. If you look at the Psalms, there's numerous Psalms where the psalmist just cries out and names something that's broken in the world. So if there's something in your heart that you see out in the world around us that's broken, come to the board of lament and just write it down. Another board is a request. If there is a request that you have been praying for that you want God to work in, we encourage you to write that down. And then the third one is praise, a place where we're saying, yay, God. Um, and it was cool, the first service, it was pretty spread out evenly among the three boards. It was really, really neat. Um, then what I invite you to do, so write down something. You don't have to. We're not going to force you to do it, but we want you to invite you into this space. Um, not only write something down, or if you have nothing to write down, pray over something. Just look at something that somebody else wrote and pray over it. That God would see it, that God would work in whatever God's will would be. Libby's going to lead us in the words of institution. <laughs> 